You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, Legal Talk Network listeners. This is producer Lawrence Coletti reporting to you about the 2015 annual Florida Bar Convention, which took place at the Boca Raton Resort and Club in Boca Raton, Florida. What you're about to hear are two panel interviews covering the convention seminar titled Electronic and Digital Evidence, Prediscovery Through Trial. For part one, it was our privilege to welcome on the air Mr. John Jorgensen from the Silent Group and Mr. Stephen Tepler from the Abbott Law Group. We now cut to Mr. John Jorgensen. I'm John Jorgensen from the Silent Group. Uh, We're a computer forensics and cybersecurity firm, uh, operate out of Sarasota, Florida, uh, and about 90% of our work is actually outside of Florida, uh, national and international basis. Excellent. And Stephen? I am a partner in the Abbott Law Group in Jacksonville, Florida. We are a trial firm, uh, catastrophic personal injury. I direct the firm's electronic discovery and technology-based litigation. Excellent. Well, the reason I brought you gentlemen by was we wanted to learn a little bit more about an event called Electronic Discovery and Digital Evidence Prediscovery Through Trial, which is a seminar being put on here at the convention. And it's being presented by the Florida Bar Business Law Section and the Electronic Discovery and Digital Evidence Committee. Did I get all that straight? That's right. Excellent, excellent. So my understanding from our our pre-interview talk was that each of you had two events that you're responsible for within the seminar. So let's learn a little bit about that, but this time we're going to start with Stephen. Well, um, the first seminar track that I was in, in which I was involved, had to do with Uh, The Internet of Things, connected devices which operate um, and operate to do things for people such as open their doors, lock their cars, lock their windows, cook their food, and uh, operate their garage doors or their audio systems or even their medical devices. These devices now are controlled by computer code. And they operate in uh, within the internet, and they operate to uh, do good things for us. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, things bad things can happen to persons and to property. But when that happens and litigation ensues, what do you do about um, your typical discovery activities such as collection, preservation, identification, uh, and and other things? And it brings to the fore um, these emerging disruptive technologies that 10 years ago were unheard of and that now we have to deal with within the legal system. And what was the second event that you The second were? one we did was a, um, was a round table of judges talking about authentication and admissibility of electronically stored information, computer-generated evidence, if you will. And the, cha- and the challenges that are, um, that are posed by um, hearsay issues, and lawyers understand what hearsay issues are. These are statements that are made out of court um, by, a, by a non-available witness generally uh, to prove the truth of what was said. And with computer information, much of what computers generate will be considered hearsay um, if it's testimonial. And uh, then there are even more preliminary issues of authentication. How do we know, how, do we, how can we establish the who, what, where, and when of computer-generated information sufficient to get it admitted into evidence for trial? Okay. So this authentication process, we're talking about chain of custody type of issues, like when you... That involves chain of custody, involves who generated the information, where it was generated, how it was generated, has it been changed since, does it indicate other indicia of um, untrustworthiness or untrustworthiness that might cause that information to be so uh, poorly authenticated that no jury could reasonably find that it is what it purports to be. 
Okay. And then I'm really interested in this hearsay part of it. Uh, so you're talking about that now this machine's generating, you know, obviously hearsay evidence is, is built in there. It's, it's restriction. Some of it. Some of it. Okay. So, but machines, I mean, they don't have the kind of, I guess, flaws that people do, which is one of the reasons that hearsay evidence is, is restricted. Well, hearsay is not so much because of the flaws. Hearsay, um, the hearsay rule was originally intended to protect litigants from statements that couldn't be cross-examined in court. You know, well, you know, John told me that he saw somebody, uh, you know, hit somebody over the head or hit XYZ over the head. Well, that statement is hearsay because you don't know what was, whether or not the statement that was made to John is, uh, is true or not, and you can't cross-examine that. And in the computer world, um, an email or a memorandum or a statement or a text message, those can all be considered hearsay. There's a lot of computer information that's not hearsay, um, pretty much hearsay is a uh, statement made by a declarant, declarant being a person. And if a person doesn't make the statement, it's not hearsay. So metadata, information about the, 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 uh, the message or the text message or the email might not be, will not be considered hearsay for the most part. So there's, uh, it, it's pretty nuanced. Well, John, let's get you into the conversation. So you also spoke at, at a couple of events within the seminar. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Well, there are two events I spoke at. One was the Internet of Everything, and the other one was the mock trial. Um, what was interesting in the Internet of Everything was uh, I just came back from the RSA conference in San Francisco where we spoke about uh, the current trend towards chipping human beings. And this is medical chipping as well as uh, chipping for gaming, for video gaming, and what uh, what that would represent uh, as far as litigation in the future for security concerns as well as uh, potential hacking of uh, chips that are embedded in humans uh, or human medical equipment and uh, how that litigation may be affected by preservation requirements, uh, by uh, code discovery requirements, and uh, by collection of the uh, chip information and the code surrounding the chip information. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's just a whole other world that we're in. You know, look at this, uh, the Fitbit that everybody seems to be wearing these days doesn't look as harmless as it once did, I guess, when you start thinking about it in terms like that. Well, that's correct, because uh, that Fitbit or, or a number of different devices that are out there right now keep track of uh, what you're doing, where you're going, uh, how you're reacting, uh, where you're... Uh, where your location is. Uh, as an example, you may have a medical malpractice case uh, that uh, you get the Fitbit information from or you get any of the device information from and you can show that this person's heart rate is at a certain level and uh, that uh, they were exercising essentially, traveling, uh, running over a, a, a distance and covering that distance within a certain period of time. So. Um, these devices, uh, those devices, will will provide information uh, that could be used in litigation, as well as uh, some concerns exist today about chipping of individuals to help them play games or, or video gaming better, because those chips tend to be uh, programmed. Uh, by the individuals, and they're not being installed by medical personnel. They're being installed by tattoo parlors. So if somebody was able to hack into a chip and uh, cause that chip to act or react in a certain way, 
uh, and may have affected the person's behavior or may have collected information uh, from that person, uh, what's the liability and what, what litigation can ensue as a result of that? Before we get to your sev- uh, second uh, speaking engagement, I have a question for both of you in regards to this. Uh, a little bit before my time, you know, DNA evidence was introduced into the courts, and there was obviously some some blowback to that. You know, what does it mean, and how does it used, and why is it accurate? Is this when you start talking about the Internet of Things, and you start talking about where you're collecting evidence from a chip, you know, from from a computer, from a machine? Are we having problems communicating that to the court? Like, what does this information represent? Is that the barrier? Is it like DNA evidence? You're definitely having problems, but I think it's at a different level. The problems that you're having in presenting it to the court, and is there are, there are federal judges and there are local judges who are working hard to keep up on the technology, but most of the problems exist in, in explaining the technology to the court and doing it in such a manner that they understand what the information is that's actually being collected and stored and how relative that information is to litigation. It's ones and zeros, and ones and zeros have been around for a long period of time. So the ones and zeros is not the question. It's not the technique that's the question. It's really what do the ones and zeros represent in the litigation effort. And what is it, the the issue is what is it you're trying to prove? If you have an internet, a, a connected device, part of the internet of things, that malfunctions and causes property damage. Um, how, where do you start? Do you start with the thing? Is it the device itself? Is it a mechanical piece of the device? Or was it the code in the device that was defective? And if it's defective, then maybe you have to look at traditional product liability issues. But in terms of, lo- of discovery, what are you going to discover? You're going to discover, instead of just getting the manufacturing design, you may need the, um, the coding information, the program that operated the device. You may need the source code for the program. You may need the versions of the source code, the source code uncompiled, which means the human-readable source code, to find out what exactly that device was intended to do. And then you may have to test it against the environment in which it's placed to see whether or not the alleged defect was latent within the device or whether it was brought out by its interaction with the with the environment and then was it something which could be reasonably foreseen if you're looking at negligence and this brings up uh, these bring up old principles of law but new applications that create additional layers of complexity for lawyers I think that's uh, that's well said you know and, and to further on your Fitbit example John you know if if you've got a spiked heart rate and you're trying to prove that somebody was not fit to exercise and was injured, you know, you look at just the heart rate coming from the Fitbit. And I think, uh, uh, Stephen, your point right there is the Fitbit working properly. Is it measuring the way it's supposed to? But also, if it was measuring heart rate accurately, what does that mean? Does that mean they're exercising or does that mean they were just scared? Well, or you know? does it mean or, or can it mean can it be used as evidence when somebody says that they were um, they were at home sleeping? Uh, when a certain crime was committed, but the Fitbit says that um, that you were operating at a heightened, elevated degree of activity at the very time that the that the crime was committed. Yeah. No, by the way, the Fitbit might have a GPS signal in it that might say where you were at the time that you were engaging in elevated activity, or at least where your Fitbit was. Uh, then that's another issue. You know, uh, maybe my Fitbit was stolen at the time, but. Um, there, there are all these, there are old evidentiary issues and pro- probative issues, but the new issues about what the code says and how it correlates to your real life activities are questions that are becoming more and more important. Well, John, let's talk about your second speaking engagement within the seminar. So what was that one about? 
that was a mock trial, and uh, actually it's a mock trial that we also did at the RSA conference in the legal track of the RSA conference. And uh, the interesting points that come out during that mock trial uh, concern the costs of actually uh, the discovery process and uh, how those costs affect the uh, value of the data that you're collecting. Also, um, the issues surrounding a protocol to uh, collect information or to discover information and how far an attorney is able to go during that discovery process and whether it's a phase process or not uh, where uh, cooperation uh, would uh, trigger one kind of collection response and non-cooperation would re uh, trigger a different kind of collection response. And the judges' responses during the mock trial were interesting, as well as the attorneys discussing uh, what information you're actually going to have access to and how you could get access to that information. What was your, uh, your favorite response from both an attorney and a judge? Well, um, the attorney's response that it was uh, overburdensome, overbearing, uh, too costly, uh, really doesn't hold up uh, much water anymore uh, in, in actual practice because uh, electronic discovery is, is far cheaper, far less expensive uh, than trying to look through reams and reams of paper. And um, the, the uh, judge's response when uh, we began to talk about using special masters was interesting. Uh, you know, judges don't want to end up looking at reams and reams of paper either. Uh, and having a special master uh, assigned to the case uh, can sometimes uh, alleviate some of those problems and talk to the technical issues that are maybe a little bit more difficult for the judge to understand and comprehend. Okay, great. Well, fantastic. I just have one last question for uh, for both of you. So now you were both on the Internet of Things uh, uh, part of that uh, part of the seminar, and so I just wanted to to get your biggest takeaway. What was your biggest takeaway from being part of that event together? For me, it's that people don't realize that um, the Internet of Things is now um, illustrative of people being the product, whether they buy a product or not. Typically, when you use a service like Facebook, you get it free, but they use all the information you generate, so you are the product. Um, usually, when you bought a product in the past, you owned it. Now, you're generating all this data that, that, that goes into this uh, Internet of Things, great gaping maw, big data, um, and it's questionable as to who owns that data that's generated. It may be you, it may not be you, and that's a question that we'll see unfold in the years to come. And John? Well, I think the, the biggest issue are, is the surprise and the uh, concern expressed by the lawyers in the audience um, the, while we were talking about the Internet of Things and also the mock trial, you didn't see anybody nodding off. Uh, <laughs> they're all paying close attention. And uh, it, it's really, it truly is a technology issue in today's day and age. And uh, it's important. I think uh, everybody would agree that attending the conference that you have uh, technical, uh, technical assistance uh, in uh, assisting you in getting through the, the uh, issues of what's discoverable, what isn't discoverable, what the costs are associated with it, uh, how do I treat uh, the data that 
I'm responsible preserving for preserving. And uh, you know, one of the uh, other surprising things was uh, telling the uh, lawyers that don't open up that computer that belongs to your client and start going through that computer because you're now destroying evidence and uh, you you have a responsibility to preserve that evidence. And it's, it's a little bit different than going through paper in that uh, you're not leaving tracks behind as you review paper and, and take a look and see what the evidence is. Well, looks like a great place to leave it since we've reached the end of our time together. But I want to thank uh, both of you for joining us, uh, Mr. John Jorgensen and Mr. Stephen Tepler. And if our listeners wanted to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Stephen. You can email me at uh, the easiest email for me is stepler, S-T-E-P-P-L-E-R at me, M-E dot com. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. And John? Uh, you can email me at uh, J-E-J, Juliet Echo Juliet at... Uh, silent.com, S-Y-L-I-N-T.com. We hope you enjoyed this part one of two panel interviews. Up next, we continue our coverage of the seminar with Mr. Christian Dodd from Hickey Smith and Mr. Larry Cunin from Morris Manning. We now cut to Mr. Christian Dodd. I'm in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm with the Hickey Smith firm. We're based in Pasadena, California, but I'm the the Jacksonville outpost. Gotcha. I do uh, commercial litigation, class action defense, some IP litigation, and a lot of work in electronic discovery and digital evidence, which I think we're going to talk about today. Yes, yes, we are. Okay, and, and uh, Larry? So I'm Larry Cunin. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and you wonder why I'm down here in Florida while well, I needed a break from the heat in Atlanta, so it's <laughs> nice to come down to 92 degree, 95% humidity, Florida. But I'm actually a Floridian, started my legal practice in Florida. Uh, currently in Atlanta with the law firm of Morris, Manning, and Martin which is a, mostly a southeastern Washington, D.C. firm. I personally specialize in litigation, mostly commercial litigation and technology re- litigation, as well as chairs our firm's data security practice. Okay. Well, gentlemen, I brought you by because I wanted to talk a little bit about the seminar you were part of. It was titled Electronic Discovery and Digital Evidence Pre-Discovery Through Trial. And it was sponsored by the Florida Bar Business Law Section and the Electronic Discovery and Digital Evidence Committee. Did I get all that correct? That is correct. Okay, perfect, perfect. So you guys were part of another event. It was called, uh, let me look it up here. It was called the Emerging Technology and Ethics. And uh, Larry, you were the moderator, and Christian, you were one of the panelists. So uh, I don't know who feels more comfortable, but could I get a 50,000-foot synopsis as to what that was about? Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to do so. The Florida Bar is actually thinking right now about increasing the ethical requirements. Uh, There's a certain number of hours that we lawyers need to do every three years, 30 hours. They're thinking of increasing that to 36, filling it up with technology-related education. Lawyers face that technology every day, whether it's technology in just our own laptops, our iPads. Our clients also have technology. We have information that we exchange with our clients, with opposing counsel, with the courts. And for those of us in litigation, social media is big. There's evidence on social media. We have iPhones that are tracking our information. There are ethical rules that apply to the competence of a lawyer in representing a client. And what our panel primarily addressed was the applicable ethical rules and things that lawyers should be thinking about in representation. Okay, fantastic. Uh, Christian, you were part of the panel. You had uh, How many fellow panelists did you have on, on board with you? Uh, so there, were, there was myself and two other panelists, and then, of course, Larry was moderating. Okay, perfect. And so uh, 
uh, what what was your contribution to the panel discussion? It was it was it divided up? Was it a roundtable? How how'd that work? It was roundtable. It was very interactive with the audience. Uh, it was nice because we had a lot of you know our colleagues here in the Florida bar raising their hands and saying, "What about this? What about that?" My contribution, I think, was to scare people a little bit. Okay. Uh, actually, I think we all did a pretty good job of that because we were talking about technology issues that a lot of the um, the members of the bar and the audience, they may not feel real comfortable with. But again, you have to have a certain level of competence in this to be abiding by your ethical duties. Okay. Well, what were some of these topics that were making people so uncomfortable? Metadata was one of them. Okay. Information stored on devices. This was a big one where we talked about the fact that if you, uh, you're at the hotel right now, and if you go down to the business center and you need to print a document, you might put it on a flash drive and you print it out. Well, that document is going to reside in the memory of the computer and possibly on the printer. And if it's full of client confidential information, you need to be mindful of, you know, are you abiding by your duties? Are you doing it the right way? And there's a little guidance from the Florida Bar on this. There's some ethical opinions on these topics. But uh, until you dig into it and, and think about it, you may not fully know what the duties are. So printers in public places, uh, metadata, you know, what, what other kind of topics did you guys get into today? It, we're just talking about printers stuff there. It's not just in a public place as well, but there's even Florida Bar Advisory Opinion, uh, I believe it's 6-2, that talks about, or is it 10-2? 10-2. 10-2. That talks about you have printers and scanners in your own office, and when it comes time to dispose of that, in, that equipment, attorney-client information is still on that equipment. And it could be privileged information, it could be financial information, it could even be healthcare information if your firm happens to be involved in healthcare. So what the focus was on was certain ethical rules, and I'll just touch on them really fast. Oh, sure, please. Um, but Florida Rule 4-1.1 says a lawyer must be competent in representation. And so if we are talking about representation in which information is stored electronically, you should understand that. Uh, there is a 4-1.6, which is the requirement that we keep our clients' information confidential. So as I mentioned, um, with disposing a printer, you have to clean the hard drive that's on there. What got me thinking about this topic and how I got involved in it was as simple as I'm involved in a move. I have personal computers. And my wife and I had to think about, are we going to donate these or are we going to throw them away? And I put the brakes on it saying, wait a minute, I've got years of client confidences on there. I've got evidence from cases on there. And so we had to go through steps to pop out the hard drives, make sure that the hard drives were properly disposed so that our client confidences did not get exposed. Uh, and then another one, I'm not going to touch on every ethical rule that may be in play, but another one is a lawyer's obligation to supervise his non-lawyer staff. So we all rely on secretaries, vendors, paralegals, copy people. Uh, we are responsible for supervising those people and making sure they understand those rules as far as keeping client confidences. I want to touch a little bit upon the uh, the keeping client information confidential. So, you know, there's obviously been a lot of development around the country at the, with the different ethics, uh, with the different ethics codes and and uh, and requirements. And so, what I wanted to touch on was the standard, because the standard seems pretty gray. I mean, you go around in different states and you talk about it. You just have to be you have to be competent. It has to be reasonable. Take reasonable measures. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of words that describe sort of a standard, but they don't get into specifics. So did you guys touch upon that? I mean, how do you, how does a lawyer in Florida know if A, they're competent, 
and if B, they're they're adequately protecting client And I assume you mean not talking to their spouses and friends insofar as are they competent. I'm going to assume that as well. <laughs> well, the uh, to me, one of the scariest words in the legal profession, and it's a word that appears in the guidance, that appears in ethical opinions, and it's the word reasonable. And people will say, well, what is reasonable in a particular fact circumstance? And the, the answer is reasonable means what the judge tells you it means as he's announcing his opinion. Not very comforting. So it's always what is reasonable under the circumstances. Um, if I am traveling and I need to make a copy of a document, and this document is a prospectus that is going to announce to the world a merger between two major corporations, I am probably going to be held to an extraordinarily high standard and probably should not hand that document to the clerk behind the hotel counter and say, please make a copy. If the document, however, is a piece of evidence that I'm getting ready to show my opposing counsel or turn into the court, which is going to make it a public document, reasonable is going to be something a lot lower than that. So the answer is there really is no answer. You have to look at every individual fact circumstance and um, reasonable and the, or the other phrase that we hear a lot, it depends. Can I do this? It depends. Depends wow. on the facts. Well, that's tough. I mean, it's a tough place for attorneys to be in today, I think, uh, around the country when it comes to this. I mean, da- data security, every every place gets hacked eventually. You know, if you've got valuable information, I think it's fair to say there probably isn't any place on earth that's safe from a hacker eventually. And so I guess that's the problem we have is that, uh, you know, lawyers' offices compared to, you know, Fortune 500 companies or organizations that deal heavily in tech that have a lot of resources and manpower to throw at security just can't stand up to it. I mean, just even the biggest firms are not as big as, as some of the biggest tech companies when it comes to that. And so I guess it's just difficult. And, and the floating standards, the sliding scales, I mean, this is a, just a tough place for lawyers to be in. So I guess one of the questions I have that you guys were, were uh, presenting with the seminar, where can a lawyer go? I mean, if we can't get an exact, you know, bright line rule, where can you go to be at least far enough on the side of competence, far enough on the side of reasonability, where you can sleep at night knowing that you've done as much as you reasonably should? Well, uh, I I think I would look at the ethical opinions. Um, 10.2, which is the one Larry referenced, actually gives some guidance of things you should consider or be doing. But, you know, it doesn't take long to get beyond the average competence or knowledge of technology of, of the typical lawyer. And so that's where you may want to be going to outside resources and just enlist some kind of technology consultant. And this isn't someone who you have to run your whole practice through. But, you know, an example might be cloud computing. If you're thinking about moving your data to the cloud and you're going to interview different vendors, you know, and get different prices of who's going to be hosting what ultimately is your client's data in the cloud, you might want to get input from, you know, an outside security expert who might just say, here's some questions you need to be asking the vendor. So it's, uh, and you know, one of the issues we face is that technology is increasing exponentially. And so if you're not already, if you don't already have like just a baseline understanding of this stuff, you're falling further and further behind every day. And if I could add to that, I mentioned before about the Florida Bar considering increasing the number of CLEs somebody has to take. It's taking a seminar like ours that helps. It's more than just confidentiality of client information. It's also if I am a lawyer representing a plaintiff or defendant, knowing where can I get the evidence, especially from third parties is the big thing social media, 
Um, I heard one judge, a Washington, D.C. magistrate, talk about the fact that you can't walk five feet in Washington without being on camera. So if you are a simple personal injury lawyer representing a simple who ran the red light case, it is arguably malpractice if you haven't requested the video that is just going to tell everybody what happened. Wow, that is pretty scary. <laughs> so, well, uh, you know, uh, on the panel, I don't know if you had uh, the opportunity to catch some of the other presentations, but, uh, you know, as far as the seminar is concerned, even if it's just within your own presentation, what were your biggest takeaways uh, from, from the, your fellow panelists and, and from the people that you moderated? Well, I, I stuck around for the other panel, you know, the other discussions here, and the room got more and more full as the day went on, which was a good well, that's sign. That's good. That's great. Uh, we had the, the 8 a.m. show, and I think some people had not had all their enough coffee yet to make it. But <laughs> So one takeaway was there were uh, 100, roughly 110 people signed up, you know, which means people are taking this seriously. And there's talk about it. I mean, there's particularly talk about it now because, you know, the bar is considering raising the ethical requirement an extra six ethics every three years or six credits every three years in technology issues. And so a good takeaway is that it's on everybody's radar screen. Now, everybody's not there yet. And some people are resistant to having to do additional education in it. But at least everybody's talking about it and asking the right questions and thinking. Larry. Yeah, my takeaway is we used the word scary before. This is an area that is both scary and confusing and remains so and will remain so. And the best thing that people can do is be aware of what is the growing technology. As Christian said, it helps to maybe align yourself with somebody who knows technology. Make sure you're taking the right CLE courses or even reading articles that talk about um, an interesting case where somebody found evidence on Facebook. Uh, you know, or some other article about an emerging technology that a lawyer could use to assist their practice. Are you, uh, in your professional lives, are you finding it difficult for attorneys to confide in someone else, especially when it's another legal person or another legal professional, you know, hey, I'm not sure if our office is, you know, secure enough to, to meet, you know, to meet our ethical requirements. Are you finding that there's some reluctance there because they don't want to necessarily, like, turn themselves in sort of uh, when it comes to that or or are they is there, is there a culture of openness there where it's like you know what I, I'd really like to get your advice on this and people are are feeling open to share that with other legal professionals on the e-discovery front you know I'll just touch on that that piece of it um, as opposed to you know the security of my law practice front on the e-discovery front I think there's been a lot of um, don't ask don't tell like okay. you know if you don't challenge my document requests I won't challenge yours. Or if you don't challenge the admissibility of my electronic evidence, I won't challenge yours. Interesting. And, and I think it's because of a, um, you know, concern about your own level of knowledge or ability to handle this stuff. On the security front, I, I've never had anyone admit to me, yeah, my, my stuff is not as secure as it should be. And I doubt if, if I'll ever hear anyone say that. But the people who understand it more, they're more inclined to say we're taking a lot of measures. Yeah, on the security front, my experience is that people are, are pretty open uh, and not open insofar as, hey, my system's insecure, what do I do about it? But more of, I want to make sure my systems are secure. Is there a vendor that you're aware of, some of whom are here today? I, I don't, don't know if you talked to uh, the Jorgensen's from the silent group before, but they do that kind of work. Uh, and I do get questions from that because people do want to be secure because all you have to do is open up the newspaper or turn on y your internet every day and you will see something about uh, some insecure 
data breach, something got released. Remember, even the Sony breach didn't even involve financial information. It was just emails, uh, very embarrassing ones. So people are willing to talk about that. Yep, I think that's great. I think it's a good sign there from uh, from your perspective. So, uh, well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program for today. But I want to thank both of you for stopping by and sharing some of your knowledge with the uh, with the Florida Bar members and uh, also our audience at large. So, if a member of our audience wanted to reach out and talk to you, maybe learn a little bit more about what was, what was discussed today, or ask some advice, uh, where can they reach you? Let's, uh, let's start with you, Christian. HickeySmith.com is the website. You can find me there, and feel free to email me or call me. And uh, I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And Larry? And uh, my website, which is Morris, Manning, and Martin, which is three M's, pretty easy to remember. It's That's M- great. MMMLaw.com. My email address is lcunin at mmmlaw.com. And uh, just reach out to me. I'm more than happy to talk to you about these issues. We hope you enjoyed this series of panel interviews as much as we had recording them. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.